um, maybe I'm a little bit um, chauvinistic or old-fashioned in this way, but how many, how many of you men bought your, your bride-to-be a diamond, uh, and you shopped for that diamond, and they showed you that diamond behind some black velvet. Any, any of you guys ever, guys ever have that experience? Yeah, okay, I'm seeing some hand, people putting their hands up like that. Like, I'm going to call on you, I'm going to embarrass you if you say yes. Uh, but, but that's a good thing, right? It, it really is. But there's a reason that jewelers show you diamonds against a, uh, a black velvet background. Because that which is beautiful is magnified when shown against that which is not. So for the past three Sundays, we've talked about Sin, unrighteousness, hypocrisy, and how that both Jews and Gentiles stand guilty before a holy God. Paul has spilt a whole lot of ink here in the first three chapters, or the first two chapters actually, of Romans showing man's guilt. But before we can ever grasp or really comprehend, or I would say even appreciate the good news, we've got to clearly comprehend the bad, that which is beautiful, is magnified when shown against that which is not. So in keeping with my promise, uh, we're going to go briskly through today these 20 verses of Romans. Again, y'all, uh, several preachers that I know of have spent months and months in just this one chapter. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, preached 17 sermons in this chapter, where I will preach two. Uh, but again, the idea is we want to go through it a uh, little bit quickly. So today we're looking at verses 1 through 20, and here's the main idea. God is totally righteous to judge man's total depravity. That's what it is, verses 1 through 20. God is totally righteous to judge man's total depravity. Depravity. We'll look at God's total righteousness in the first eight verses, and then uh, in the final 11 or 12, we will see man's depravity. So, God's total righteousness, these first eight verses that we've already read, Paul explains about God's righteousness by answering really three sets of questions, right? If you've noticed these questions, again, for those of you who may have not followed us or been here the past several weeks, God, uh, uh, excuse me, Paul is having this imaginary uh, dialogue with uh, a Jewish person beginning in chapter 2. He's talking to a Jew, and uh, that's called a diatribe. So, th so this Jewish person would set up arguments, and Paul would answer those arguments. And that goes on here at the beginning of chapter 3. So if you'll recall, look, look at the very first question we're going to run against. He says, then... What advantage? Okay, last week we talked about the Jews having these advantages, right? The, uh, and they were given all these blessings by God, and it's almost like they just turned away from it. And so they, he asked the question, well, what advantage does the Jew have? Or what value is there in circumcision? Now that begs the answer. We, just, we expect Paul to just go, well, there, there is none. I've already talked about that. There's no advantage in being Jewish. But that's not what Paul does. Paul gives the answer, and he says... Um, there is a benefit, and the benefit is God gave the Jews the oracles of God. He entrusted the Word of God to the Jews. So yes, there is an advantage. Well, let me just bring this up to date, something that maybe we can relate to, right? 
We could probably illustrate this by thinking about the church. Theologians refer to uh, the visible versus the invisible church. Y'all ever heard that before? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that, and and I can call on you to explain it. Okay, one or two, right? So, but, but people have, have talked about the, the visible versus the invisible church. Well, the visible church, we'd say, is made up of all professing believers, right? So, so it's people who have, who have been maybe baptized and attend church. Their name is on the church roll somewhere and maybe may active in, in the local church. And we'd say, well, that's the visible church. You could call them the covenant community. At least on the outside, they're church members. Okay? That's the visible church. It's the ones that we can see. However, the true church would refer to that as the invisible church. Why is that? Because only God knows the heart. You know, we can fool a lot of people. We can fool everybody, really. In fact, we can even fool ourselves with our outside. But it's the inside that really matters, what Paul talked about last week. And God sees, y'all, God sees down into the inside. He he knows the shell. He sees the shell. His eyes don't stop on the outside like ours do. It penetrates down in there. He says that only those who have circumcised hearts really matter. Now, R.C. Sproul, I like the way R.C. Sproul talks about it. He, he talks about there are four kinds of people. And actually, have you ever heard it? Uh, there are, it's been said that there are only two kinds of people in the world. Um, those that divide people into two kinds of people and those that don't. Um, that's supposed to be a joke, but I can see that didn't go over it too well. But you can divide the world into two kinds of people. You can say those who are really believers and those who aren't. But R.C. Sproul, I, I like the way he does it. He, he talks about there being four kinds of people. And listen up. See where, where you would fall into this. He said there are those people who are saved and they know it. I'm saved and I absolutely know that I'm saved. He says there are also, number two, those who are saved but they don't know it. Now, you might wrestle with that a little bit. You might kick back on that a little bit. But he's basically referring to a person who has genuinely put his or her trust in Christ, but they're a little bit unsettled about their faith. They're not totally assured uh, what it totally means to have that assurance of salvation. But they're not saved based on their feeling. They're saved based on the fact of what Jesus has done for them, and they have fully believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So they're saved, but they don't fully know it. He says, third, there are those people who are lost, and they know it. Absolutely lost and not going to try to fake it. They know it. But then fourth, he says there are people who are lost and don't know it. These would be members of the visible church, but not the invisible church. Does that make sense to you? Shake your head up and down. Do something to let me know you, you're listening today. Okay, I know we had breakfast. I know it's settled in there. I know you tend to drift off. But hang with me here just a little while. Those people who are lost, but they don't know it, those are part of the visible church. In fact, you, you know, they, may have, they may have done every outward mark where a Jew would be circumcised to identify with the covenant community. In the church, we are what? We're baptized, for one thing, to, to, to have that outward mark 
of being part of that covenant community. We're baptizing uh, someone next Sunday. Very excited about that. Uh, but just because a person has that outward mark, just because a person has been baptized, does not mean that he or she is part of the invisible church. I would ask you, do, do those people, the members of the visible church, but they're not part of the true church, do they have any advantage over pagans? Here's a question. Does someone who is not truly part of the Invisible church, they're not part of the true church, but they're part of the visible church. In other words, they're lost, but they come to church regularly. Do they have an advantage when it comes to uh, knowing God and knowing the plan of salvation and things like that? Do they have an advantage over someone who's a pagan who never, never goes into a church? I'll ask you that question. Yes, absolutely they do. They sure do. If they come to church, they've heard the Bible preached. If nothing else, they've heard the Bible read. They've witnessed baptisms. They've witnessed the Lord's Supper. They've tasted, in fact, the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, they lack genuine faith. I believe that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is referring to in Hebrews chapter 6. I want you to look with me um, as we can, uh, if you'll put that, that text up on the screen there. I, th I think we have that. If not, uh, yeah, there you go. Thank you. It says this, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, listen to what they've done, who have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then having fallen away. It is impossible for them having fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Why? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Are those not sobering words, church? You're tempted to ask, well, don't we believe in the eternal security of the believer? Don't we believe that a person who is saved never loses his or her salvation? I say, yes, we do. Yes, we do. But listen, it's impossible to lose that which you've never had. And I believe that's exactly who Paul is referring to in, in Romans 3 and who, who the author of Hebrews is alluding to here. Those who are part of the, the visible church. Y'all, we all know people who, who come to church and have done the churchy things and maybe they've been baptized and they even prayed and they sing and they even they get goosebumps when, when George sings Sweet Beulah and they get those goosebumps, but yet their heart has never been changed. You can grow up in church. You can be exposed to many of God's means of grace. You can hear the Bible preached and prayed. See the church rally around those who are dying. You can be so close and yet still miss heaven. 
I give this extended illustration to really show what Paul, I believe, is talking about regarding the Jews. The Jews were given the oracles of God. They were exposed to all things God. Everything was God about them, and yet they were just as lost as the Gentiles. It brings us to a second question. Uh, the question goes something like this. Well, so many of the Jews have been unfaithful. Does that mean that God is no longer faithful to His covenant promises? In other words, has God's plan imploded? All the promises that God gave to Jacob, to, to Israel, to, to Moses, to Abraham, to David, uh, did those just implode? Did those go away? Does God renege on His promises? Well... The answer in verse 4 is absolutely not. By no means. God said it. That settles it. You ever seen those bumper stickers that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it? Uh, that, that is erroneous theology. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. God said it, and that settles it. Now, we should believe it. He goes on, Paul quotes David from Psalm 150, uh, excuse me, Psalm 51, verse 4. You remember the, the, the deal uh, David had sinned with Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet comes into David and tells David, he's like, he tells him this story about this little lamb, and David's like, man, well, let's go crush that person. Whoever did that is awful. It's an awful, awful sinner. And Nathan points at him and says, what? You're that man. But David doesn't just David doesn't back up and go, hold on, hold on, hold on. I had every right to do that. I mean, uh, and come up with all these excuses. Uh, he's like, he could have said, God, you put me in a crazy kind of position. You, you should have never put me, you should have never put that woman up on the roof bathing like that. You just tempted me to do wrong, God. It's really not my fault. That's not what David does. David says this against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Why? So that you, listen, so that you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David is saying, God, you are holy, you are good, you are perfect. And even though I am decadent and I am decaying, God, you're not. And you keep all of your promises and you never change. You see, man will take this verse and twist it and apply it to himself. Man thinks that, that he, that I, that I can twist God's Word and I can go into His Word that is very plain. I can, I can read where it says, don't do this, and I can say, well, you know, really Greek scholars have studied this for the past 100 years and they've come to a different conclusion. No. That's what they do. That's what the devil does. That's what he did in the very beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve. How did Satan get at Eve and Adam? By questioning God's Word. Did God really say this? And you see, the minute that we buy into to this little tweak and we, and we begin to believe, well, maybe God really didn't say that. Well, now I can begin to justify my actions based on the Word being twisted a little bit. So I'm keeping the Word. But if the Word's been twisted, I'm keeping a twisted Word. And if I'm keeping a twisted Word, I'm not really keeping His Word at all. Well, I could spend a long time here. I don't want to do that. But it goes on to another question. I'll paraphrase what goes on in verses 5 through 8. He's basically the, the, the questioner, the, the diatribe, the Jewish person says, 
Well, if God is all-knowing, follow me this argument now. If God is all-knowing, if He's sovereign, He's righteous, and if, and if all of that is made evident by my unrighteousness, then why am I condemned since my sin is ultimately bringing glory to God? In fact, you follow that logic on a little bit and you could, you could ask the question that he does. He's, shouldn't we all just sin all that we want to so that God will ultimately bring good out of what's bad? Shouldn't we just do that? <laughs> and Paul says, absolutely not. That would be like, I'll just give you an example. Judas Iscariot. Y'all know who that was, right? What did Judas do? Somebody. Betrayed Jesus. So that would be like Judas on judgment day, standing before a holy God. And Judas would say something like this. He looks in God's face and he says, Lord, look here. What's the greatest thing that's ever happened to this world? Well, the atonement. The death of Jesus on the cross for our sin. That's the greatest thing that's ever accomplished, the atonement. And Judas going, God, you know what? That would have never happened without me. If I would not have betrayed Jesus, he would never have been arrested. And if he were never arrested, he would never have been given this false trial. And if he had never been convicted in this false trial, he would never have died on a cross. And if he never died on the cross, he would never accomplish the atonement. So God, without me, the atonement would never happen. that sound like ridiculous? That's the argument Paul is making here. It's like, no, don't take God's Word and twist it and think that somehow because God is glorified even in the midst of our sin that we just keep on sinning. So when we come to the, the very end of verses 1-8, through 8, the main point, the big picture is this. God is a righteous judge and His condemnation of sin is unassailable. His ways are perfect. His ways are just. Everything that He does is right. So if God is totally righteous, now we're going to look at the second half of this message, and that's the idea that man is totally depraved. Man is totally depraved. If you look at the, the question, the bottom line question of, of verse number 9 is this, are we Jews better off than the rest of mankind as far as judgment day comes? In other words, being right with God, are we better off? And the bottom line answer we see is no, not at all. Paul says we have already concluded everyone is under sin. Everyone, Jews and Greeks, all belong under sin. Having a Bible is not the same as believing it. And so he says, under sin. What does under sin mean? There's, there's several definitions, but let me just, just maybe touch on two. One is being under guilt or the weight of the burden of our sin. How many of you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress? One, keep your hands up. I'm really curious about this. One, two, three, four, five. Anybody up there? I got a four there. I got a five down here. I got a six up there. I got a six up there. Uh, anybody, is that just six people have read Pilgrim's Progress? Church, turn off the TV and read Pilgrim's Progress. You say, well, that ain't preaching. Well, maybe it's meddling. 
But if you remember Pilgrim's Progress, there was a guy in that, that story, the, the Pilgrim, his name was Christian. And Christian was walking around on this planet with this burden, this weight on his shoulders. And everywhere he went, he was bumbling and stumbling and could not maneuver. And life made no sense until the one day, one day Christian comes where? To the cross. And Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan says, when he came to the cross, the burden on his shoulders fell off and rolled away. You see, being under sin means being under guilt. Y'all, this is not talking specifically or primarily about feeling guilty. Do you understand? Being under sin means that we are guilty. It's a forensic guilt. It's a legal guilt. Another way of looking at under sin is to look at it like this. It's mean under the penalty. Under the penalty, you've committed the crime, we've committed the crime, then we do the time. We are sentenced by a righteous judge. He goes, so that's what Paul, his introduction here to the depravity of man, he says that we're all under this righteous God and we're all under sin. And then in verses 10 through 18, Paul indicts all of us and his indictment of our sin that he's been talking about in chapters 1 and 2 and now I have a chapter 3. It reaches this crescendo here in these verses. And y'all, if there was ever any doubt as to our standing before a holy God without Jesus, verses 10 through 8 make it very, very plain where you and I stand before God outside of Christ. And here's the deal. If you've not felt miserable these past three Sundays, well, now's your chance. Verses 10 through 18, Paul strings together these numerous, various Old Testament verses to show man's total depravity. Now, when you use that, or when I use, you didn't use it, but when I use the words total depravity, I want to make sure we understand what that means. I don't want to confuse that. Some people confuse total depravity, meaning that we're as sinful as we could be. Well, we're not. If you think about it, every sin that we do could be actually egregiously worse. But the doctrine of total depravity means this, that every part of me, every part of you has been tainted, has been touched by sin. There's nothing left that, that is totally perfect the way God created it. And so we look at these verses 10 through 18 and we start to see how it is that every part of us has been corrupted by sin. In verse 10, he says this, he says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Um, I'm not a great linguist. I've only had a couple of years of Greek. But I did some deep research into verse 10. I was real curious about what these words mean. None is righteous, no, not one. So I spent a long time researching that. And I came out and I concluded, you know what it means? None. Huh. It means None. It's the most negative way that anything could be expressed in the Greek language. None is righteous. No, not one. What's been affected? Well, your mind has been affected. Verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks God. Y'all, no one really understands how, how dire our situations are without Christ. Lost people don't get it. 
They don't understand that. Our wills have been affected. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Listen, no one does good. Not even one. And you go, hold on, that can't be true. I know people, even I've got like Mormon friends who do nice stuff. I've got uh, uh, you know, unbelieving friends who do good stuff. I've got gay friends that are very, very loving and they do great things. Y'all, the Bible essentially says that anything we do in this life that is not ultimately for God's glory is not counted as good. You see, God not only sees the outside, y'all, God sees the inside. We talked about that last week. Everybody saw the outside, the Pharisees coming with all their money and their big bags and dropping it in those boxes and it was making all that noise. And they would stand and they would look and they would just question, who sees me? Who's watching me? See, their motives were ulterior. Their motives were on self. Who did Jesus commend? He commends this poor widow who has like, you know, a dollar. and Drops a dollar bill in there and nobody sees it. Except God. You see, God sees the heart. And He sees our will. And He knows what we're doing. He knows what our motivations are. He hears our mouth. Listen to what He says. Their throat... Y'all, their throat is an open grave. They use tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. How poetically descriptive is that? Our feet have been affected by sin. Our feet take us quickly to places where we shed blood. You fill in the blank where that might be. See, man says he wants peace, but he has no idea that he's at enmity with God. Man's relationship anchored in enmity against the holy God is his greatest need, and man is more concerned about the cooling of the earth. How to cool the earth down than he is about his major problem in life. Drop down to verse 18, because if you, if you miss everything else you see in verses 10 through 17, verse 18 just kind of summarizes it. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Man fears global warming and death, high cholesterol, abnormal lab reports what other people thinks about him. But man has no fear of the only fear that we really should ever have. And that is standing on judgment day before a righteous and holy judge. Well, so what good is the law? What does the law do? Paul really will get into this later on, but he touches on it here in verses 19 and 20. Let me just read those one last time. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Man, if I ever give the impression that this is fun preaching this kind of stuff, man, you, you drop kick me out of here. 
If I ever give the impression that, that I am somehow you know, separated from this condemnation from, from mankind that, is, that has a black heart and is it sinful and that the preacher stands up here all holier than thou, drop kick me out of here. Here he's shedding light on the whole role of the law. We've already seen, y'all, not having the law counts. What counts? Listen to me. Follow me closely here. If you missed a few Sundays, don't miss this. He says, having that law does not count. And then here it goes. Doing the law does. You say, hold on. Oh, that's not how I've been taught. That's not where I grew up. I grew up knowing that we're justified, uh, we're declared righteous by God by faith. Through great, by grace through faith, right? In Christ alone. And keeping the law hasn't got anything to do with it. Well, I'll just remind you of the verses that we read in chapter 2. Let me just remind you of these. Verses 6 and 7 say this. He, speaking of God, will render to each one, listen, according to His works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. I see some of you squitching in your seats a little bit right now, wiggling a little bit, going, hold on. That doesn't square with my theology. Verse 10, chapter 2, says this, But glory and honor and peace for everyone who what? Who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jump down to verse 13. What does verse 13 say? For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but what does it say? But the doers, the doers of the law who will be justified. Hold on. Now I'm really wiggling in my seat. If you recall when we were in chapter 2, there were two ways that we said could, this could be discerned or this could be interpreted. One is to say that he's speaking here of Christians. It's a very good interpretation that people, only the people who are able to do good works are those who God has sought and brought to Himself and removed His stony heart and replaced with the fleshly heart that the Holy Spirit has inhabited that person, lives within that person, and therefore He's speaking in chapter 2 of believers. Believers are the ones who are keeping the law, and the way that they keep the law is because the Holy Spirit living with them, and that's a great way of interpreting. Another way of interpreting, and it's kind of the way that I lean, but, but I'm not strong either way, is that he's speaking here about everyone, every person. And the only way you're going to ever earn eternal life is by keeping the rules. And when we come to to next week, or actually the 17th, we'll find out you can't keep the rules. No one is able to keep the rules. And we understand all. Oh, so all of those people who do good are justified by God, yeah. And who's the only one who's ever done good? Christ. Christ alone. So, two main takeaways about the law, and we're about ready to Start landing this airplane. And somebody said, Preacher, I've heard you land an airplane before and you go like in a holding pattern for uh, a while. No, we're getting there. So just, we're just thinking about the law, stepping back just a minute, and, and okay, what, what good is the law? What's the law doing? Or what is it not doing? Number one, the law saves no one. 
No one. I can't keep them all. You can't keep them all. Keeping the law saves no one. But number two, what is the law doing? Well, the law is revealing sin. The law is like a thermometer. Y'all got thermometers, right? Used to, um, they'd take a thermometer and mama would go and look behind a where, medicine cabinet and pull out a thermometer and shake it and stick it in alcohol or something like that and stick it in your mouth and you sit there and wait a little while and they take it out and look at it. And I would ask you this, well nowadays they, take, they stick it in your ear or they stick it on your head or whatever, but it's doing the same thing. How many of you would do this? Um, you've got a little child at home, you know, he, she's, she's seven years old and you know she's burning up with fever and she's just disoriented and, and just, you know, just really, really bad off and you're just kind of scared. You, you really are. And if you're a parent, you've been there when you've, your, your kid's been like that. And you run into the, the bathroom and you go behind the medicine cabinet and you get out the thermometer and you take it and you stick it on her head and it's 104.7. And then you run back to the medicine cabinet, you put the thermometer up and say, okay, I'm done. That would be ridiculous, right? Why? The thermometer is not healing your daughter. The thermometer is showing how sick she is. The thermometer is saying, she's sick and you better get her to the doctor. And when we see the law, whether we're Jews or Gentile, we come away saying, if we're honest with ourselves, we come away saying, God sees my heart, I'm sick, and I need a healer, and His name is Jesus. That's what the law does. So let me just summarize then where we've been, because this is, this is a cutoff point in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through chapter 3 verse 20 is a self-contained unit and it's giving some major ideas that we've got to grasp, we've got to hold on to as we move through the rest of this book. Number one, and I've already alluded to this, Gentiles know of God through natural law. Right? They look into the heavens, they see the stars, they see the sun, they see the, uh, the, the leaves on the tree in the fall. They realize there, there's got to be God. They know inherently what's right or wrong. They don't have to have a written law. They know it. And yet Gentiles suppress God's truth and they worship the creature and not the Creator. And we spent a whole, almost a whole message talking about this, something that's up front in our faces now, and we all need to hear it, that Paul demonstrates how that homosexuality reveals man's total spiral into spiritual morass. It's that in particular where man is saying, you're the creator, I'm the creature, you created this way to live, but I will stand in your face, God, and I will tell you, no, this is how I will live. That sounds harsh, y'all. I know that sounds harsh, but I'm just telling you what God's Word is saying. So Gentiles know of God through natural law. Number two, Jews are privileged and they have God's law. They've got the oracles of God, but they're not able to keep God's law either. The law shows their guilt. Number three, having the law isn't what counts. Keeping it is. 
keeping it is. But we know once we, we're told we've got to keep the law, we know that we can't. You don't believe that? Draw a line somewhere on the playground and tell your children you can't cross the line. What do they do? What do your children do? On the playground, you take a piece of chalk and you draw it out there. And you t- Maybe not your children, but like children in general. You draw that line out there and you say, Kids, you know what? Play on this side all you want to, but don't go over the line. What do they do? What do they do? I mean, initially they go up to the line and they put their foot over it, but I'm not over it, and they pull it back. And put it over and pull it back and say, I can do that. I won't get in trouble. Nobody got me. And so they jump over and jump back. Nobody got me. I'm okay. Jump over and jump back. Until you jump over. You don't jump back. You just keep walking. And that's how we are. It's the way we are. David talks about it in the Psalms. He says, you know what? The sheep, sheep don't, sheep are dumb, right? That's what we are. We're dumb animals. And we just as soon look for the filth and the muck and the mire. We'd, we'd rather stay in a puddle of mess and muck and mire and, and, and sheep feces than we would go over to the green pastures. We'll stay there forever. And we wander. And we tend to walk away from God, not to God. The law is there and it shows us how far we really are from Him. So finally, number four. Again, to summarize on what we've done the past several weeks. Because of all that stuff, we realize, hey, I need a righteous standing because one day I will stand before a righteous God. So I'll close with asking you this question. I want you just to be sincere. We're not going to have like an altar call today. I'll have a... I'll be over there in the, the room across the hall if you want to talk and want to pray. But just be very, very serious to these questions I'm going to close by asking us to ask ourselves. And I'll ask you this question. Are you a member of the invisible church? Are you a member of the invisible church? In other words, are you saved and heaven bound? Well, question number two, are you a member of the invisible church and the visible church? Because they're both important. Yes, being, being part of the invisible church is absolutely the most important, but God tells us all throughout the Bible in the, in the New Testament, being part of a local body is absolutely vital to our growth in Christ. Are you a member of the invisible church and the visible church? Number three, are you neither? Are you neither? Are you just absolutely lost? You know it and you'll admit it. And the final question is, it's a hard one. Are you a member of the visible church but not the invisible Have you played the Christian game for a long time, but you know above above all things that truly when you stand before that righteous judge on that day, 
He sees beyond your church membership. He sees beyond whatever it is that you've done to think that you've earned your way to Him. And He's looking at your heart. What a sad, sad place to be surrounded by the things of the Holy Spirit and yet reject them. My daughter, when she was, my oldest daughter, when she was, I guess, about seven years old, six years old, and I was, uh, I wasn't a preacher. I was in the Navy. We were living in Hawaii. And she was a good little, good little girl attending Awanas every Wednesday night, heard all the Bible verses, knew all that kind of stuff, and just knew it was time to be baptized. And, and we, we talked to her as much as we could and explained to her and, and so on and so forth. But only God knows the heart. But as, as a six-year-old, I think I, she got baptized. I remember I was in the baptistry with the preacher in her and how joyful it was, my, my first, my oldest little child, to be there and help her get up out of the water and how excited I was. And fast forward about 10 or 11 years later, I come home one night after church and this same daughter is sitting at my kitchen table weeping. And she says to me, she says, Dad, I've lived a fake life. All this time I was a leader in a youth group. I knew all the right answers. I gave all the right answers. But I've never been converted. Daddy, God knows my heart. Can God save me? And there, at that moment, God saved Adrian. She got in front of the church a week or two later. You want, you want to think? I mean, you think about it. Here's this preacher's daughter stand in front of the church and confess to the whole congregation, I've been living a lie. And God knows my heart. So, I just give that to you today as a word of encouragement. Not as a word of fear or anything like that. God knows our heart. That's enough to scare us. God knows our heart. That's enough to send us into exuberant jubilation. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Our God and our Father, um, what a... Um, what a heart-searching text you've given us these past few weeks. And Lord, I admit to you as I preach, it just sounds like I'm just being harsh. But God, I've tried to faithfully declare what your word says about all of us. And so, Lord, all we can pray this morning is that you take your word and use it for your glory in the way that only you can. Not man, nothing we can do, not try to bribe, twist, change anybody, force someone to believe anything. God, only you can change a human heart. We just ask that you have your way. and we, Those of us whom right now you are moving in our hearts, may we just be sensitive and respond to you. And we'll give you the thanks and praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.